We continue on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews this morning, looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Congregation, since we started the fifth chapter of Hebrews, we have been dealing with one long and obviously very important central theological argument of the book of Hebrews. We started chapter 5 on January 3rd. And from that time till now, we have been focusing on the superiority of the new covenant and the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice and how he, a priest like Melchizedek, accomplished what the old covenant could not and how he did it through his self-sacrifice. Chapter 10 is the conclusion It's the climax of this line of reasoning that we have been in since January 3rd, since the beginning of the fifth chapter of Hebrews. And when we go to chapter 11, things will shift. We will move from exposition to exhortation. And so let me encourage you from now until Christmas, Lord willing, as we work our way through chapter 10, let's keep our focus. Let's see how the author culminates this proclamation of the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus. With that encouragement, let's consider Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. I will read it aloud. I encourage you to read along in your Bibles or on your devices. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I suggest to you this morning the main idea from these four verses is this. Since the old covenant sacrifices were ineffective and therefore insufficient, we must look to Christ and to his sacrifice for our salvation. Point number one but a shadow, verse 1a. The law, and really the whole Mosaic sacrificial system, is, according to the author of Hebrews, insubstantial and inadequate because it is a shadow of the reality and not the reality itself. We read, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. We see here the author continues to describe and to delineate the gulf, the chasm between what the old covenant accomplished and what Christ has accomplished. And he does so in this instance by indicating that the Mosaic sacrificial system is insubstantial. It lacks substance. And he makes this claim by calling it a shadow. Shadows lack substance. Now, a shadow is an effect 
It's an effect of light being intercepted by something physical. And the interception of that light creates a a void, a void that is an image of what the physical reality is. That's how a shadow works. It is an absence in some ways. It's the absence of light from a source because something significant has stopped it. Now, in Hebrews, when the author speaks of shadows, he speaks of things that lack the substance of the thing that casts the shadow. It doesn't mean that thing is without substance. It doesn't mean it has no substance, but it lacks the substance of the thing that is casting the shadow. In that sense, shadows in Hebrews are more like Peter Pan's shadow than they are like our shadows. If you remember the story of Peter Pan, he had a shadow which had some substance to it. The darling's family dog, Nana, was able to bite the shadow and hold on to the shadow. And if you recall, when the window was shut with Peter on one side and the shadow on the other, the shadow was severed from Peter. Fortunately, Wendy was able to sew Peter's shadow back. But the shadow of Peter Pan had some substance to it. It wasn't the real thing. Peter Pan was the real thing. But his shadow wasn't nothing. It wasn't an absence. Well, the old covenant shadows are like that. They're not nothing. They have some substance, but they lack the substance that the heavenly things have. They lack the substance of the things that cast those shadows. Now, this idea is very important. We need to understand this concept, the concept of a lesser thing pointing to a greater thing, the lesser thing still having value, but not the value of the greater thing. And we need to understand this because it occurs throughout Scripture. It occurs when the Word talks about shadows, but we also hear the word talking about types and patterns and figures, and this concept applies in those cases. When it is said that King David is a type of Christ, or that the Exodus is a pattern of our salvation in Christ, or that the law is a shadow, what is being communicated is that those things, the shadows, the patterns, the types are not the ultimate reality. But there's something that indicates or points to something greater than itself. And so the Mosaic system was a real thing. But in light of Christ, it was insubstantial. And it was insubstantial because it was neither the original thing, nor was it the ultimate thing. We know it was not original because we're told in Hebrews these things were patterned after the realities, the heavenly things. In Hebrews 8, we read that the Levitical priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, indicating that they were not originals, but they were patterned after the original reality. Not being the original is one reason why the Mosaic system is a shadow. Another reason the Old Covenant sacrificial system was insubstantial, was a shadow, is because its very purpose, ultimately, was to point to something 
greater than itself. In this case, the sacrifice of Christ. So we need to think about Christ. We need to think about Christ casting a shadow. But what's interesting is Christ casts his shadow both forward and backwards. Well, what do do I mean by that? While Christ, being eternal, always existing, and God, knowing his plan of redemption from the foundations of the world, this means that Christ cast his shadow forward and was the pattern for the sacrifices that God gave to the Israelites. So from eternity past, Christ casts his shadow forward. He's the original sacrifice. And those were patterned after him. And yet, Christ also casts his shadow backwards, backwards from Calvary. Because we learn from Scripture that the sacrifices of the Israelites were to prepare God's people for when Christ came. And so we have this interesting picture of Christ casting a shadow from eternity past to the time of Moses, but also Christ casting a shadow from that hill on Calvary backwards to the sacrifices that God gave to the Israelites. Christ is the reality. Christ is the heavenly thing. Christ is the good thing that was yet to come. And the good things that came along with him were things like true atonement and true forgiveness and true redemption and true reconciliation to God. These things are the true and greater good things that these verses speak about. These aren't the good things that the world chases after. Don't confuse the shadowy good things of this world with the real and greater good things, the heavenly realities. You see, the world would have us pursue the shadowy good things. And it would have us pursue those things at the expense of the real and true great things or good things. I was considering this idea, an example of the shadowy good things the world wants us to pursue came to my mind. I thought about the One Republic song called Good Life. In the song Good Life, One Republic sings of good things, of traveling, of friendships, of adventures, of life experiences. And to these things proclaims, oh, this has got to be the good life. This has got to be the good life. This could really be a good life. And the good life certainly is a life filled with good things. But good things that have no spiritual anchor are simply shadows of the true good things found in Christ. Traveling the world, having fun with friends, Experiencing adventures are not bad, not at all. But they are not the true and real good things because they will not last. They're not ultimate good things. They're a shadow of the good things found in Christ. And so our friendships on this earth are to point us to and encourage us to desire friendship with God through Jesus Christ. Our desire to travel, 
is a hint at the fact and a reminder at the fact that we are all sojourners. We are all travelers here, and we are all looking for a better country, as the author of Hebrews indicates. Our adventure seeking in this life is a good thing, but it is truly meant to help us see that the divine drama of walking with God is the ultimate in thrill-seeking, the ultimate in risk-taking adventure. And we need to keep this clear. The good things in one republic's good life and things like those are not ultimate, only Christ is. To make those things ultimate is to make them idols, to look to them to provide the good life that only comes through Christ and only comes through his sacrificial work, is an error with potentially infinite consequences. These shadowy things, like the Mosaic Covenant, lack the substance to accomplish what they seem to promise. They are not bad, they're not necessarily evil, but they cannot affect the true good life, the good life in Christ. Just like the old covenant could not accomplish what the good things to come could, these things cannot achieve what the heavenly realities can. And so let's keep those things clear in our mind. Point number two, make perfect. Verse 1b through 2. The repetitive and thus ineffective nature of the old covenant sacrifices is evidence that they are not the good things promised, but are only a shadow of them. We read, it, the law, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The repetition found in the Mosaic system is evidence supporting the author's contention that these sacrifices are a shadow of heavenly reality. One commentator suggests, quote, repetition conflicts with finality. An action that is final does not tolerate repetition. And conversely, an action that is constantly repeated, thereby shows itself to be inconclusive. What is inconclusive is imperfect, both in itself and in its effect. Hence the argument in the passage before us, end quote. Repetition indicating futility is famously communicated in Greek mythology through a king of Corinth known as Sisyphus. Homer, in the Odyssey, describes the punishment of Sisyphus and what he had to endure at the hands of Zeus. Homer wrote, Then I witnessed the torture of Sisyphus as he wrestled with a huge rock with both hands. Bracing himself and thrusting with hands and feet, he pushed the boulder uphill to the top. But every time, As he was about to send it toppling over the crest, its sheer weight turned it back. And once again, towards the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, he had to wrestle with the thing and push it up, push it up while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. 
the eternal punishment of forever rolling a boulder up a hill in the depths of Hades is tragic. It's tragic because of the futility of this repeated action. Well, similarly, the repetition of the Mosaic economy indicated that it was not effective. It wasn't accomplishing the desired end. It could not make the worshiper perfect. And because the worshiper wasn't, worshiper wasn't perfect, the worshiper didn't have access to God. Now, the ineffectiveness of the Mosaic sacrifices is not just seen in the repetition, but also is seen in the actual experience of the worshipers. Even after yearly sacrifices, the worshipers were still painfully aware of their sins, their transgressions, their iniquities, their lawlessness continued to weigh on their consciences. Now, brothers and sisters, our conscience is our inner capacity. It's a capacity that human beings have to have an awareness of what is right and wrong, of what we believe to be right and wrong. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that if the Mosaic sacrifices were effective, it would leave the worshiper assured of their own forgiveness and therefore free from guilt and condemnation. That is, their consciences would be clear and they would be able to access God with confidence. But that was not the experience of those who repeatedly offered sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, let us not miss the point of this evidence. The point isn't finally to prove the ineffectiveness of the Mosaic sacrifices but ultimately, it is to proclaim the complete and final effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. For those who avail themselves of Christ's sacrifice, there is full assurance of forgiveness. There is freedom from guilt and condemnation. There is access to God. And that approach is one we can take with boldness and with confidence because of what Christ has done. Now, I can hear some of you in my mind saying, but Pastor Jude, I am a believer, and I have availed myself of Christ's sacrifice, and yet when I sin, I don't have assurance of forgiveness, and I still feel guilty. If that is you, let me suggest three things you might do. If you are someone who is a believer in Christ, and yet never senses or feels that assurance of your forgiveness and are continually plagued by a guilty conscience, let me suggest three things. First, determine if you have truly availed yourself of Christ's work on your behalf. Determine if you truly are a believer. Mike McKinley, in his book, Am I Really a Christian?, which I recommend to any of you who are asking that question, he has the following chapter titles. You are not a Christian just because you say that you are. Here's another one. You are not a Christian just because you like 
Jesus. These chapter titles and others suggest that some people, some of us, may think that we're believers when in fact we are not. We become believers by sincerely repenting of our sins and wholeheartedly entrusting ourselves through faith to Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And this is the first step. If this is something you struggle with, assurance of your forgiveness, a guilty conscience, this is the first step. There is no other. You will remain in this condition until you truly avail yourself of Christ's sacrifice by actually and sincerely believing. And so I encourage any of you who have not done this to do this today. And if you need help with that, come and speak to me after the service. Second, if you are a believer and you are not assured of your forgiveness for for your sins and you are continually burdened with a guilty conscience, then perhaps you need to, having repented initially and generally for sin when you were converted, perhaps you need to develop the practice of regular repentance as a discipline of the Christian life. Our conversion entails both repenting and believing. But when we consider the definition of repentance, it is clear that this must continue throughout our Christian life. Wayne Grudem defines repentance as a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, we do this initially at conversion, but clearly this repentance must continue. Consider Christ's words to the believers who gathered as a church in Laodicea that John recorded in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Christ saw repentance as something that continued in our walk with him. We just passed Reformation Sunday, and it reminds me that the great reformer Martin Luther understood this. When Martin Luther went to the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to that door, what some people say was the spark that initiated the Reformation. Do you know what the first of the 95 theses was? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So if you sin, brothers and sisters, as we all do, repent. Honestly and truly confess your sins. Acknowledge your sorrow for having committed them. Renounce them and commit yourself to forsake them and endeavor to walk in obedience 
Don't think that your repentance at conversion will suffice for the rest of your life. And with regular repentance, you may find that assurance of forgiveness gains strength in your soul, and you might find release from that burden of a guilty conscience. The third thing I would say to the person who is truly a follower of Christ, who has continually and sincerely repented of sins, and yet still has no assurance of forgiveness, and continues to experience a guilt-ridden conscience and feelings of condemnation, what I would suggest to you is that you might need to recalibrate your conscience. Because the conscience is a human capacity, and because sin has marred every aspect of our existence, we need to acknowledge that our conscience can be wrong. And if you are a follower of Christ, and you have been adopted into his family through Christ's death and resurrection, and you truly have repented of your sins, and you still lack the assurance of forgiveness due to a guilty conscience, then let me suggest to you, your conscience needs to be recalibrated. And we recalibrate our conscience with the word of God. God's word says in 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's word says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.21 through 23, which we'll get to, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These three things, availing yourself truly of Christ's death, repenting of your sin continually, and submitting your conscience to God's word may be of great help to you if you lack the assurance of your forgiveness and are burdened by a guilty conscience. The sacrifice of Jesus is an unrepeatable sacrifice. It's an unrepeatable sacrifice that assures us of forgiveness and it cleanses our conscience. And it is therefore gloriously greater than the old covenant sacrifices. And we finish this morning considering them. Point number three, these sacrifices, verse three and four. The repetition of the sacrifices of the Mosaic covenant indicate that they are ineffective for salvation. We read, but in these sacrifices, the Mosaic sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, as we consider the sacrifices prescribed by the Mosaic law, I think we do well to spend a few minutes this morning just thinking about the idea of sacrifice. Now, in our sermon series, we have already considered why animal sacrifices weren't sufficient. But we need to consider this morning why sacrifice in any form is even a thing. Have you ever asked that question? Why does God even require sacrifices? Could God not have accomplished his salvation 
Through some other means? Why is the spilling of blood required? Why is death required? Couldn't we have received atonement by some other way? Why didn't God decide that we could atone for sin by whittling a stick? Or by walking a certain distance? Or by singing a song? Well, let us consider the act of sacrifice, an act that is an aspect of the worship of God. Let us note this morning that from the very onset of life after the fall, sacrifice was a way in which God interacted with humanity. There is surely a hint of sacrifice in Genesis 3.21 when God provides coats of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. In Genesis 4.25, there is sacrifices offered by Cain and Abel who presumably learned this practice from Adam and Eve. And as we go on in the early chapters of the Bible, we read of Noah in Genesis 8.20, Abraham in Genesis 12.7 and 8, Isaac in Genesis 26.25, Jacob in Genesis 31.54, all making sacrifices. And Job, certainly one of the oldest books in the Bible, has Job in chapter 1, verse 5 and 42, verse 8, offering sacrifice. So this has been a thing for humanity since the beginning. So let's get our bearings here. Men and women were created to worship God and to exist in a loving relationship with him, one in which he is the creator and we are the creatures. But sin, sin severed that relationship and poisoned the worship. See, we were meant to glorify God, but sin does the exact opposite. It takes the glory that should be given to God and places it on ourselves. And because of that, instead of there being a great love shared between the creator and his creature, because of our sin, we face God's wrath and judgment. However, God, being merciful and loving, patient and gracious, he ordained a way for humanity to interact with him and even influence him in spite of our sin and rebellion. God ordained an act of worship, an act of worship that signified what was required for a holy God to interact with sinful humanity. And that act of worship he ordained was sacrifice. Sacrifice portrays the anger and punishment that sin deserves and elicited from God. Sacrifice portrays the removal of sin and its forgiveness through the sacrificing of a substitute. Sacrifice demonstrates the satisfaction that God, by his very essence, requires. And sacrifice demonstrates the reconciliation that God truly desires. I don't know how else God could have arranged things. What I do know is that he determined that sacrifices were the way that sinners would interact with him. And sacrifice was the means by which his judgment could be avoided and his anger could be satisfied. He ordained that sacrifice by a substitute would allow his wayward children to be forgiven and reconciled. Now, we learn in the book of Hebrews 
that most of the sacrifices he prescribed were only shadows of the good things to come. They weren't sufficient. They were repeated because they lacked finality. They didn't gain access. They didn't cleanse the conscience. They didn't ultimately forgive sins. They didn't ultimately save. But they all pointed to one sacrifice that did, the sacrifice of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the good thing that was to come. It is the good thing that the shadowy sacrifices pointed to. And the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of our consciences, the reconciliation of men to God, the being made perfect, the gaining access to God wherein we can approach boldly, and the final salvations of our souls to God are the good things that the sacrifice also pointed to. And this is why we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice. This is why we share communion, why we come to the Lord's table to celebrate this sacrifice, this true good thing that brought with it so many other true good things. And this is why we continue to consider Jesus because he is our great high priest, but he is also the lamb who was slain for us. And this is why we say to him, be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Father God, for its clear presentation of the sufficiency, of the finality, of the conclusiveness of the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to something that was more real than they were. More real because it affected and accomplished what was promised. The forgiveness of sins. The cleansing of a conscience. Access to God. Full and final salvation. I pray, Father God, that you, by your spirit, would help us in regards to this. Help us, Father God, as we live in this world, not to confuse the shadowy good things of this world with the true good things that are the heavenly realities. Let us participate in them. Let us enjoy them. But let us use them to look to you and to look to Christ and all that he accomplished on our behalf. I pray for those who are here this morning who continually struggle with a lack of assurance of their forgiveness and a guilty conscience. And I pray, Father God, your spirit would help them, Father God. If they don't know you, if they've never truly availed themselves of Christ's death and resurrection, I pray that your spirit would help them to do that this morning. If they haven't, uh, practice the discipline of repentance. I pray that you, by your spirit, would add that to their walk with you, that they would confess their sins. They would acknowledge them. They would feel great sorrow for them and desire to walk in obedience to you. 
And I pray, Father God, if their conscience needs recalibration, they will go to your word, read what it says about forgiveness and a clear conscience in Christ, and trust you in regards to those things. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus, for all that he is and all that he did. It's in his name we pray. Amen.